This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 18, the first eight verses, as we move to a part in Luke's gospel where he will be bringing to us a pair of parables that Jesus is teaching. One for today and and one we will look at next week in chapter 18. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We ask this morning that you would reach us by your word. That you would teach us all that we need to know, but more than that, O Lord, that you would mold us into the image of your Son. This we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we look here this morning at Luke 18 at a parable that Jesus is teaching. This is... Very important to us understanding what Jesus and Luke are bringing to us. Luke goes so far as to say that what Jesus is doing is telling a parable. He doesn't want us to figure it out or assume it. It's a part of the point that he's trying to get across. And Jesus gives parables so that he can quickly make an important point. There are Very minimal words used in a parable. Jesus is going to paint a picture of two people and their interaction and its application to us in about a hundred words. Think about that. Parables are used so that in a minimal way, a direct point can be made. And the direct point that Jesus wants you to hear today is do not give up. Do not lose heart. But keep on in prayer. It's a relatively simple message. 
But Jesus wants us to take it to heart. And so this morning we will look at the story. We will look at the parable of Jesus and the two characters. For some of you, the heading in your Bible above chapter 18 says, The parable of the unjust judge. For others of you, it says the parable of the persistent widow. And the answer is, it's Jesus' parable. And both of these characters are vital to the story. The second thing that we will see is that Jesus tells parables for a purpose. And so we're going to look at the purpose behind the parable. Why it was given. So let's begin then by looking at the story of the parable of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 18 begins that Jesus tells a parable. And what he says is, in a certain city, in verse 2, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So, Jesus is starting to tell a story about a man and a woman. And this is not disconnected to what we saw last week in chapter 17, how Jesus told us about the coming of the kingdom. And you recall that the kingdom comes in two seemingly very different ways. There is a present now aspect to the kingdom, and there is a future consummation, completion of the kingdom. Right? And we have to understand that we live in the now. And then we also have to understand, and I'll say it so you can feel free to nod your heads, and I won't blame you, that it's not as much fun to live in the now. We have sin. We have pain. We have sadness. We want the kingdom to be consummated. We want to be free from sin. We want to be free from being hurt. We want to see Jesus. But we're living now, aren't we? And so what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's going to help you and me to live in the now. Because that's where we are. And so Jesus makes this story intentionally very general. Now, do you notice this? He says, in a certain city. He doesn't say in a big city. Because then everyone who's never lived in a big city will say, it doesn't apply to me. He doesn't say in a little city. Because anybody's living in a big city, he said, it doesn't apply to me. He doesn't say in a northern city, a southern city, a Jewish city, a Gentile city. It's just a certain city. And then he goes even further. He says, there was a man. And actually, the word certain is there in the Greek too. There was a certain city and a certain man. Was he tall? Short? Big? Small? Old? Young? We don't know. All of us can relate now so far because it's very general. And Jesus does that intentionally because this is something he's trying to teach all of us, not just a few of us. He says, in a certain city, there was a certain man who was a judge and he neither feared God nor respected man. And so what we begin to see here is a picture of a man that you and I would not want to spend time with. We wouldn't want to have dinner with him. He doesn't fear God. But that means so much more than just that he's an atheist. You see, we know and deal with atheists all the time, don't we? It may be that some of you right here sitting in the room don't believe in God. And you're here in church. 
And we have doctors and lawyers and professors and co-workers who don't believe in God. And on some level, we can get along with them quite well, can't we? You see, the problem here is, is that this man is a judge and he doesn't fear God. He not only doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in the concept of God or of absolutes. He's not afraid of anything. He doesn't believe justice applies. There is no concept of justice for this man. The only thing he cares about is himself. And so... What we have here is a situation where you have a man who is a judge who does not believe in justice. And in this day and age, it was all too common that the only way that you won a court case was that you gave the judge the biggest bribe. Now, if we stop and think for a moment, I've just described about 75 to 80% of the whole world. South America, Africa, Asia... You have to bribe policemen and judges and court systems to to win a case that is actually right. But if we stop and think a little bit harder about it, isn't that often even true here for you and me? Who often wins the lawsuit? Isn't it the person with the bigger, more expensive, more populous lawyers? The people that can afford to call more expert witnesses? You see, this is something that we can relate to and understand how painful that it would be. This is a man who does not fear God. But there's more to him. He also doesn't respect man. Now, this word here for respect, this is broader and deeper than just saying that he doesn't think much of other people. He doesn't show them respect. What Jesus is saying here is that this man has no shame before other people. He is shameless. He pays no respect to people and their ideas. He does whatever he wants. Now, I want you to stop and think for a moment of what your upbringing would be like. Or think about what your parenting would be like if you could never say to children. Aren't you ashamed of yourself for the way you spoke to them? Now listen. Behave. Don't bring shame on yourself and the family. Shame is a very powerful tool to help us to think through the consequences of what we do. Now I don't have to ask you to really imagine it much, do I? Because that is increasingly the world that we live in, isn't it? Things that would have been absolutely unthinkable, that would have caused mortification to godless people 50 or 75 years ago, are now currently celebrated on the covers of magazines. We've become a culture where shame is not applicable anymore. And that's who this man is. He doesn't care at all. He could not care any less what anyone thinks of him. And if we're honest, that's a very dangerous place to be. Because part of what keeps us living in a society is people act within certain bounds to be civil. You take that off, it's the Lord of the Flies land. Anything goes. That's the kind of man we are dealing with. And 
Jesus uses these two broad categories not just because they're powerful. These are the two fundamental qualifications for a judge. This is what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 1. It says, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. Do not be intimidated by anyone. Do not be a respecter of persons. For the judgment is God's. Fear God because it's His judgment. And so, he's made himself unqualified. Not unlike so many judges in the world, not unlike so many judges in Israel. As a matter of fact, as Israel began to spin downward and downward into a spiral, it was Jehoshaphat who in a revival of godliness and God's word, said to the judges in 2 Chronicles 19, he said, You judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you, and be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God. No partiality or taking of bribes. That's what godliness and revival looks like. And this man is the polar opposite. That's who we're dealing with. He's a wicked man. And his wickedness is toxic. You know what I mean when I say toxic. You put something toxic next to something good, what happens? The thing that's good gets bad. It spreads. His wickedness spreads misery and wickedness to others. And it's compounded by his power. It's bad enough to have a wicked gardener. So your flowers might not bloom right. You might clip them in the wrong places. He might sow weeds in your grass. But it's something far worse to have a wicked judge who could throw you in jail, who could see that you can't ever get a heads up. And perhaps worst is the line that we hear from his own lips in verse 4. He's not only wicked, he is exceedingly comfortable with his wickedness. Look at what he says. You can almost imagine him saying this in an offhand manner. Well, though I neither fear God nor respect man, he's absolutely comfortable with who he is. A wicked, unjust judge. And then there's a second person in the story. The second person is our widow, the persistent widow. And you have to understand that being a widow in this society was to be the most defenseless person in the society. There was no social security. There was no life insurance. There were no stock brokerage accounts to deal with and help widows after the death of the primary wage giver. And also, there were no emergency rooms or experimental drugs. And so in our society, we're used to thinking of a widow as someone in their 70s or 80s. Someone who has lived a long life with a husband and now is trying to get through the last portion of their life on earth. You could easily be 25 and be a widow here. It would be not out of the norm at all for your husband to die a death at 20 or 25 or 30. And so she has a long road to go, perhaps. And widows, because of this, were often oppressed. The Bible understands this and declares against it. In Malachi chapter 3, we see that widows are oppressed by God's people. 
And in Exodus chapter 22, there is a warning to the people of God not to oppress widows. God says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will kill you. A very strong negative. But God doesn't just leave it to a negative. He encourages his people to be positive and caring for widows. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, Isaiah says, learn to do good. What does that mean? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The widow is one who is defenseless. And she's come up with an unjust man, an unjust judge, who is the kind of person that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 20 when he says, you love to devour widows' houses. And then make a pretense of great prayers. This woman is exceedingly needy. She needs restitution. She has obviously been wronged, and especially wronged financially by someone else, because she is, she is pleading for justice. But there's another, less obvious way in which she is needy. She not only doesn't have money, she doesn't have a man in her life to help her. Because you have to understand that in this day, the courts belong to men. Women didn't go to court. And so she doesn't have a husband, obviously, but she also doesn't have a son or a nephew or a brother or even a cousin or even a neighbor who is willing to plead her cause in court. She has no one who will stand up for her. She has no one to protect her. And the irony here is that she has the law on her side. She's not asking for a handout. She just wants justice. She actually has the law on her side. But the problem is, all that she can do is plead. It's pitiful. But at the same time, it's powerful. You have to imagine, at the courthouse in the morning, the judge shows up and he gets to go into the courthouse. And as he's going into the courthouse, give me justice! After the day's done, he's coming out. Give me justice! Oh. He goes out to lunch with some lawyers. She screams over the... Give me justice! Who is that? That's the crazy lady. Everywhere I go. I go to my cousin. She's outside the door screaming, give me, give me justice. I'm trying to sleep. She wakes me up in the middle of the night. Give me justice. I go out to my vacation home. You know, the one I bought after I got that nice bit of money on the side in the last case? And she's out there screaming, give me justice. It's all she can do, but it's persistent and it's powerful. And what happens here in the story is something that I think sometimes we we might expect. There's an answer of justice that comes. Sometimes persistence pays off, doesn't it? This woman won't give up. Any of you all that have ever been parents understand this real well, right? Children, they, they don't give up asking sometimes, do they? Right? They just keep on and on. First time they ask, no is easy. Even the first five. You start to get to ten times and you're thinking to yourself, how can I get out of this without losing face? What can I do? Right? And so her persistence pays off. Now I want you to understand the judge is completely unmoved. We see this from verse 4. He says, you know, 
I don't fear God. I don't respect man. So this is not a Hallmark movie. You know, what we expect here is the judge is a hard, crusty, wicked man. And after this woman engages him and pleads with him, he reveals he has a heart of gold. And he gives her justice. No, it's not a fairy tale. It's not on the Hallmark channel. No, what's happening here is exactly what he says. He says, you know, I don't care about God. I don't care about people. But she is bothering the daylights out of me. She's about to drive me nuts. She's on my last nerve. And because of that, I'm going to give her justice. Because she is going to beat me down by her continual coming. You see, because she won't stop, because she's continually coming, and the language here is vivid, continually coming actually means to eternity. Now, you have said those words, haven't you, to your kids? Are we going to do this till eternity comes? Are we going to do this kingdom come? Can we stop already? There's no end in sight. And, and it's, it's irritating. It's embarrassing. He can't go out in public. He can't be with his friends. Everywhere he goes. Now, he doesn't have shame, but he is embarrassed. He doesn't want to be bothered with this. And then, it's actually causing him pain and distress. He says, she is beating me down by her continual coming. Now, the term here, the word for beat me down, is actually a boxing word. It means to punch someone under the eye and give them a black eye. It's kind of a technical boxing term. So we are not talking about granny with an umbrella. We are talking about Muhammad Ali. He wants no part of this. There's pain. And so she's answered. She gets... Her justice. So now then we think about the purpose of Jesus in the parable. And if we're too quick, we look at this and we want to get the answer. And what we say is, hmm, this is a parable. I wonder who the judge is supposed to be. God. I wonder who the widow is supposed to be. Me. I wonder what the justice is supposed to represent. I wonder what the crying is supposed to represent. And we try and break down and come up with an allegory. And the problem with that is it falls right initially because if you make God the judge, who's God? Wicked? Unjust? Not caring about anyone? That doesn't fit, does it? So don't make the mistake of saying what I need to do is I need to start nagging God. She nagged him. I need to nag God. That's how I get, that's what God wants me to do. He wants me to nag him. He wants to be like this widow. No. We don't want to be like the widow, just like God isn't like the judge. The point here that Jesus is making is a stark one to show us the difference. Do you understand? God is not like the judge at all. The judge is unjust. God is the very fountain of justice. He is fair in all his decisions. It is a part of his being. He is constantly in the scriptures telling us to be just, to not to have respect to persons, rich or poor, to not to go with the many or the few, but to do justice. God is not uncaring. God is love. 
He is the very opposite of the judge. He is the one who loves his people. He desires more than anything to answer his people. The scripture tells us that he is more eager to hear than we are to pray. God is just. God is loving. God is also wise where this judge is not. God knows how and when to answer. And so what Jesus is doing is he is drawing to us a picture. He is showing us that if a wicked, unjust, unloving man will answer a request, how much more confidence should you have when you make a request to a just, loving, wise God? The contrast is obvious. It's the kind of contrast that should not get us thinking, you know, I really got to work up my nagging. I got to work on my whiny voice. I got to nag God. No, it gets us thinking we got to jump out of the chair and go to our knees and pray to God because he's going to answer us. We expect it. It empowers us in prayer because God is not like the judge. But there's another thing. You are not the widow. Who is this widow? What's her name? She doesn't have one. What's her family like? We don't know. Do you know anything about this widow other than the fact that she cries out for justice? No, she is an absolute nobody. She has absolutely no claim on this judge. She has no in. She can't work any angle. All she can do is yell. And she has to yell from a distance because she can't even get close to the judge. But look at what Jesus says here in verses 6 and 7. He says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him? Day and night? Jesus says, the unjust judge listened to the nobody widow. If you, who are chosen by God before the foundations of the world were laid. If you, who God knows personally by name. If you, as Isaiah tells us, have your name engraved upon the palms of his hands... Cry out to God. How could you not expect but that he would answer? If the wicked man answers the nobody, how is God not going to answer his dear children? Again, that should empower us. What is the purpose of this story? Look at verse 1. He told it to this purpose, that you ought not to lose heart, but you ought to pray. Keep on praying. The language there is, you got to keep on keeping on. Don't ever stop. Now, it doesn't mean, the pastor is not telling you that what you need to do is, the minute you walk from out of here until you hit the pillow, you need to be in prayer every second. No. What I'm saying is, is that Jesus is telling us prayer needs to be a central focus and continual part of our lives. And when we are discouraged... We need to remember this. 
God knows His elect. He knows His people. He loves us with an everlasting love. He has created us in His image. He has redeemed us by the blood of His Son. How could we not expect that He would answer? The judge answers the request of the woman. Why? To get rid of her. He doesn't ever want to see her again. God is not trying to get rid of us. God hears our prayers because He wants us to be closer to Him. He wants to strengthen the bond of love. This could not be more different. This is an encouragement to you and to me to pray. And if we think about the answer to our prayers in this sense, we have to understand how central prayer is to the Christian life. It is, for example, one of the very first evidences of conversion. Do you remember the story of the conversion of Paul when he was Saul? It's it's a pretty impressive story, isn't it? He's traveling to go murder Christians, and Jesus comes in front of him and sees him and blinds him and says, you're going to be my apostle. Now, that make, if they could pull that one off with special effects in the movies, that alone would probably get an Oscar for that. Do you remember, though, what's the very first way Paul is described afterwards in the Bible? He's described... As one who is praying. Go find him. He's the one praying. Prayer. Is essential to our Christian life. It's one of the first evidences of conversion. But we have to understand too. That it can't stop there. That it goes throughout our lives. And it's neglect. Brings the danger of failure. You remember the story. Of Jesus struggling before he would complete the work of the cross. And he brings the disciples with him into the garden. And in Matthew 26, he comes to them and he finds them. And what are they doing? They're asleep. And he says to Peter, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. You don't want to fail, do you, Peter? Pray. Was Peter prayerful? What happened to Peter? He failed, didn't he? Now, Jesus didn't leave him in his failure. Jesus, by his grace, went out to him. But we have to understand fundamentally that we need God's grace and we need the conversation, the relationship with God through prayer to make it through the day. We're not sufficient in ourselves. And this tells us even more about the difference and the challenge between us and the people in the story. We're not trying to build ourselves up. And we have to remember, I'm going to tell you something you already know. It is much easier to begin a habit of prayer than to keep it up. Isn't it? How many of you, don't raise your hands, How many of you have determined and decided at some point to read through the Bible in a year? You say, I'm going to do that. Genesis 1, January 1. There I go. Genesis 3, January 2. I'm a good step, right? About mid-February, when you say, okay, 
Um, I didn't read twice this week, so I got to read six chapters on Saturday. By the end of March, why is Leviticus in the Bible again? Where are you in October? In October, you're calculating that if you read a hundred pages of the Bible a day, maybe you could finish on time. Right? It's hard. Jesus knows that. He didn't tell you, get started. He says, keep on. I'm here for you. Keep on. I know it's hard. I know you can't do it on your own. That's why I'm telling you, I'm here for you. That's why I'm telling you to keep on. That's why I'm telling you not to lose heart. Because I know how easy it is for you to lose heart. Right? We don't want to take the wrong lesson from this story. Are we trying to build up a critical mass of prayers in persistence to present to God to say, I've done just enough praying to get what I need? Do you think about prayers the same way you buy lunch meat? You know what that looks like, don't you? They're slicing off the ham and stacking it up on a thing. And you sit and you wait. I asked for half a pound. Okay, that's a quarter. Third? All right, you hit 50. Now I'll take it. Do you think God needs something from us in order to answer our prayers? Do we think God is ignorant and he needs reminders about our prayers? Do we think God is unwilling to answer and that we need to cajole him and convince him to answer our prayers? Do we think God will be swayed by the amount or the piousness of our prayers and answer them? No. I have to tell you honestly, beloved, your praying ain't that good. But the good news of the gospel is it doesn't need to be. You don't need to work up the perfect prayer or the perfect amount of prayer for God to hear because God is not an unjust, wicked judge. God is one who longs to hear and to answer the prayers of his people. And we have to persist in this because God listens to our prayers. And we have to persevere even when we don't feel like it. Even when we wonder if it will make a difference. Have you prayed and said, I don't know what God could even do to fix this. But God, I'm going to pray you fix it. We don't even know what to tell God to do. We need to persist in prayer even if we get a different answer than the one we expected or wanted. And sometimes we need to persist in prayer because if we're honest, we pray and the answer is silence. Right? There's a reason for silence. Sometimes the answer is a loving no. Think about where your children would be if every time they asked you for something, you said yes. They would all be 400 pounds and diabetic. And they would never have a vegetable cross their lips. Right? They'd be eating cake and cookie and everything else. And they would have no knowledge because they would never do school. They would never do homework. They would never do lessons. They would never work. Right? You can't just say yes all the time for, the, for your child's own good. Yes, children. No is sometimes the best thing you should get. Yes, adults. No is sometimes the best thing we can get from God. But it could be too. 
that sometimes God has something bigger for us than even we planned. Do you remember the Apostle Paul coming to God and he tells us in the Bible, three times I went to him and pleaded that he would take this thorn out of my flesh. Did God take the thorn out of his flesh? No. What did God give him? More grace. What did Paul need? He needed more grace. He wasn't asking for more grace, but that was what he needed and that's what God knew. Sometimes God has answers for us that we don't ask questions about. Sometimes God answers in silence because he wants to impress upon us our dependence on him. To keep us before him. And sometimes God is silent because he's still at work in our lives. He's not ready to answer. He's still working in us, making us more and more like Jesus. Jesus can tell us this parable. Jesus can tell us it for a purpose that we ought not to lose heart and we ought always to pray. Do you know why? Because Jesus didn't lose heart. Think about the most difficult moment in Jesus' life. As he was there pinned to the cross with people mocking him, with all of his followers and his family sad and confused and not knowing what would happen. And as For that time, that mysterious time that we can't even understand, somehow the fellowship of the Trinity was broken and the Father turned His back on the Son. And Jesus looked up and He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there was ever a time to lose heart, that is it. It's not when you lose your job. It's not when a car breaks down. It's not when you get sick. That is the time to lose heart. And what did Jesus do? He prayed to his father. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus knows what it is like not to lose heart and to pray. And he tells you this for your own good and blessing. Prayer is a sign of the faith that he gives to you and nourishes within you. That's what's happening in verse 8 as we conclude. I tell you, Jesus says, he will give justice to them speedily. When it comes, it will come quick. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, Jesus knows he's going to find faith on earth. He's the giver of the faith. He knows he's got people. What's the point he's making here? What he's saying is the devil wants you to give up. The devil wants you to say things aren't coming quick enough. God's not listening to you. He's not going to answer you. He's abandoning you. Your prayers mean nothing. What Jesus is saying is as we continue on in prayer, that is a sign to us of our faith and trust in Jesus. As we continue on in faith... And we wait for Jesus. Seeing our prayer as a sign of the faith that Jesus has given to us. And a surety of the promise that he is coming back. And he will answer. And he will answer quickly. Is prayer central in your life? Is prayer a comfort in your life? 
This story here reminds us that we ought never to lose heart. We ought to keep on praying because of the character and the person of God. Trust in Jesus. He's the one that equips you, that molds you, and that empowers you to keep praying even when you're sure you can't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would draw us ever closer to the cross, that we would see there the great love that you have for us, the great care that you take for us, that you have spared nothing, not even your Son. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make us vigilant in prayer, that we would long to be with you. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.